I recently received the first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, it's not widely available yet here in Spain where I'm living, but in Spain, teachers are among the first to be vaccinated. And since I'm here teaching English in Spain, I'm counted among their numbers. At first, after getting the vaccine, I felt fine. And six hours later, I went to bed feeling fine, thinking for all the world that my immune system was so strong and that I was young and healthy and therefore it had no effects on me. But about three hours later, I woke up with chills like I haven't had since I was a small child. And no matter how many layers I put on, no matter how many blankets I cocooned in, I just couldn't get warm. I couldn't even stop myself from shivering. I had a horrible fever, and I couldn't even think straight. It was difficult to focus on anything besides my intense feeling of cold and the violent shaking my body was going through. But being the history nerd I am, one thought made its way through my brain fog in that moment. In that miserable state I was in, I suddenly remembered the story of Caesar catching malaria at 19 years old. And if you don't remember this story, because it was covered earlier in our podcast, let me remind you. When Caesar was 19 years old, his name was put on a death list by the local dictator, Sola, dictator of the Roman Republic. Young Caesar was then forced to move from house to house out in the countryside, hiding from Sola's death squads. During this period, he had to constantly find new friends or family or even strangers willing to risk their own necks to take him in and hide him from these death squads. And I imagine he never stayed anywhere for too long, almost like the stories you hear from Holocaust survivors of hiding out in somebody's basement or somebody's attic and trying to avoid death squads hunting for them. But in hiding out in what were no doubt some squalid conditions, young Caesar managed to catch himself a bad case of malaria. And from what I understand of malaria, it's a sickness that will leave you feeling far worse than my vaccine reaction. I mean, I may have felt like I was dying from this vaccine reaction, but I wasn't actually. Malaria, on the other hand, really kills people, lots of people. And it was then, when young 19-year-old Julius Caesar was in a malaria-induced feverish haze that the death squad sent by the dictator Sola finally caught up with him. And so, lying in my own feverish haze, I imagined what I would do if suddenly a squad of hardened soldiers burst through my front door and said my name was on a death list of the local dictator and that they were there to chop off my head and bring it to said dictator to get paid. How would I react to that? At the time, remembering back on it, I felt like I could barely get up to go to the bathroom, never mind string together a coherent sentence. And if a bunch of hardened veterans came toward me, swords drawn to cut off my head, even if I wasn't in a feverish state, I have my doubts as to how coherent of a plan I would form in those few seconds. At 28 years old, no less. Here Caesar was, still a teenager, in the midst of a malaria fever. Think about that. Think about being 19 years old again. That's when you were a freshman or sophomore in college. 
not exactly the best critical thinking skills. Yet, young Caesar doesn't freeze up. He doesn't shut down. He doesn't panic. He uses those few seconds that he has left to utilize the weapon of his that would later become so legendary. He uses his voice. Now, this is long before he had honed his skills of speaking in the law courts and in Senate meetings. This is before he had even attended the famous oratory school in Rhodes. Yet, even at 19, Caesar has a way with words. And in his feverish state, he is able to find just the right words to say and says them in just the right way to convince these soldiers to let him go in exchange for a bribe. And this is a far harder task than it may at first seem because these soldiers have all the power. They could easily chop off Caesar's head, take his money, and still get paid by the dictator Sola. Despite this, young Caesar prevails and the soldiers take the bribe and let him go free. Now, if you've listened to this podcast from the beginning, you know I've already told the story before. And you're probably wondering how and why we've gone back to talking about a 19-year-old Julius Caesar. Well, the answer is that having had this recent experience with fever, it gave me a whole new respect and perspective for what Caesar accomplished in that moment. I truly came away feeling like it's not until you are laying there with a high fever and horrible chills that you can even begin to put yourself in Caesar's shoes. Never mind the fact that I didn't have malaria, which would be a far worse feeling than anything I had. And I wasn't 19 years old in really what was probably Caesar's first time away from home. And the most important part, I didn't have death squads hunting me. It's just incredible poise and self-composure that he demonstrated under the most trying of circumstances at such a young age. And I have to think that such dramatic events happening to Caesar at such a young age had to have a massive impact on his psyche for the rest of his life. And keep in mind that this all happened, these death squads hunting him, him catching malaria, only four years after Caesar's father had dropped dead while putting on his shoes one morning. And that happened when Caesar was only 15 years old. And your father dying one morning when you're 15 years old? That has to be an event that would be traumatic for any 15-year-old. Well, imagine now, only four years later, you're on the run from death squads, you have to leave home for the first time, and you catch malaria, and the death squads catch up to you. That has to be something that would scar any young person's mind. And imagine how such an experience might inform their every decision for the rest of their life. A traumatic incident like that at such a young age. An experience like that could leave many young people a nervous wreck for the rest of their life. But for a select few people, such an experience might fuel them throughout their life. It might give them a desire to become so powerful they will never find themselves in a helpless position like that again. And I think Caesar is one of those people. There's a common saying that describes how many people behave after traumatic incidents. It goes, hurt people hurt people. In other words, people who have been victims of some trauma or some crime will often go on to hurt other people in that same way. It's a very weird quirk of human nature. 
Violence precipitates violence. While young Caesar had every right to be psychologically, if not physically, damaged from all this, and many, many, many people throughout history would have taken those mental scars and used them as an excuse to lash out at all of those around them for the rest of their lives. They would have used it as a justification to be a hard and ruthless man that didn't show mercy to anyone. Yet, Caesar's reaction to all of this seems to have been the opposite. Throughout his life, when dealing with fellow Romans, he was remarkably merciful, remarkably forgiving and understanding, even to his enemies. To give you an example, years later when Caesar was an aedile, now 35 years old, he had the opportunity to prosecute the leader of the death squad that had caught Caesar when he was 19 years old. But far from using this opportunity as a chance for personal revenge, Caesar ends the cycle of violence. He outright refuses to prosecute this man. And while it's impossible to know 100% what Caesar's reasoning was for refusing to prosecute this officer, we have an idea of, of his reasoning via other things that he's done and said throughout his life. For example, Caesar was very proud of the fact that he never neglected anyone who aided him in his life. And Caesar may have seen this man letting him go as a service rendered to Caesar. In other words, this officer didn't have to let Caesar live all those years ago, even after accepting the bribe. He could have easily taken the money and still killed Caesar and gotten paid by Sulla the dictator. But instead, this man had taken the money and left Caesar to live the rest of his life. And for that, Caesar was grateful and therefore refused to prosecute this man. And I've read a lot of history but I haven't read about too many people in history that would have made this decision to end the cycle of violence and to show understanding and appreciation for the other party who had been a death squad sent to hunt him down. Now, in telling this story about my AstraZeneca vaccine experience, I want to make sure no one gets confused. I am in no way an anti-vaxxer, and I'm not advocating against vaccines. I've read way too much history to not understand how devastating disease can be without modern healthcare systems and especially without vaccines. The only reason I've used this example of me getting very sick from the vaccine is because it really happened and because it made me think about young Caesar and what he went through when he caught malaria. That's it. There's no greater political message here. It simply made me reflect and put myself in young Caesar's shoes and to realize what he went through during that time. And since this is a podcast that right now at least is about Julius Caesar, I figured I would share that with the audience. Now, let's fast forward back in time to a 42 or 43-year-old Julius Caesar after his first year in Gaul, where we left the podcast. Caesar's legions are quickly forming a reputation for themselves as efficient and disciplined machines that are absolutely devoted to their charismatic commander, and as time goes on, they will only become more and more effective. But now it's winter, and in this episode, I want to spend some time talking about what Caesar had his legions doing in winter quarters, and how he treated them during the winters. You see, the stereotype, if you will, of a Roman commander was a hard, 
disciplinarian who kept this strict discipline by flogging or executing the soldiers that got out of line. And while this seems to have worked greatly throughout Rome's military history, it was not a style of command that led soldiers to love their commander. And of course, Caesar was a man who always preferred to be loved if possible. He didn't need the love, but he preferred to have it if it was possible. Think of his cultivation of the love of the common Roman people. And so Caesar's style of command was in many ways the opposite of the stereotypical, merciless disciplinarian. In fact, he turned a blind eye to much of his soldiers' behavior. And he never set any fixed penalties for crimes. And presumably, the reason that he did this was so that he could have some wiggle room when it came to enforcement. Also, Caesar rarely ever used flogging or the death penalty on his soldiers. These are penalties that would have been common in most Roman armies, so Caesar's style of leadership of not employing these types of punishments must have been unheard of to his army. In fact, the only crimes Caesar seems to have considered to be serious in his army were desertion and mutiny. Anything short of that could be forgiven. And specifically, it was during the winters that Caesar cut his soldiers a lot of slack in terms of how they behaved. Suetonius even cites Caesar as saying, quote, My men fight just as well when they are stinking of perfume. End quote. In other words, many a hardened Roman military veteran may look down upon somebody spraying perfume all over themselves as being effeminate, not masculine, not soldier-like. But Caesar didn't care what his troops got up to in their winter quarters. If they smelled like perfume, he said that's fine. They will fight just as strongly come the campaign season. And this kind of relaxed attitude towards discipline during the winters didn't come from nowhere. Caesar's uncle, Gaius Marius, the great war hero and third founder of Rome, led his own armies in much the same way. And it was probably by learning from and about Marius that Caesar discovered this approach as an option. And Marius, for his part, spent years with the legions and made his name in the legions. He was a soldier's soldier and understood their psyche intimately. However, both Caesar's and Marius's relaxed discipline during winter quarters came with the understanding that the legionaries had to be ready to meet the superhuman feats their commanders would demand of them come campaign season. Discipline may be lacking in the winters, but in the summers, it was a different story. Adrian Goldsworthy says in his book, Caesar, Life of a Colossus, quote, Then, meaning during campaign season, it was a question of tight discipline, instant obedience, and proficient maneuvers, and to ensure he received this, Caesar trained his army hard. And that brings us to our next topic. What kind of training does Caesar give his legions? Well, as Goldsworthy just said in that quote, Caesar trained his men hard. And even Suetonius, the ancient source, tells us, quote, Often he made them, meeting his soldiers, stand to attention when there was no need at all, especially in wet weather or in public holidays. End quote. And think about what he's saying there. He's saying that Caesar would often have his men stand at attention for no reason at all, or simply on holidays, or simply because it was raining, to keep them on their toes. That's like a modern commander calling his troops to attention on Christmas Day or Easter just because, just to keep them on their toes. And I would have to think that in many armies, this sort of thing would not go down too well. 
Yet, as I keep saying, Caesar's troops loved him. And this sort of treatment by their commander kept the soldiers on their toes at all times. They never became complacent, and this alertness served them well when fighting the enemy. And Suetonius goes on to say that when Caesar had his men stand to attention, he would often tell his soldiers to keep a close eye on him. And then he, meaning Caesar, would sneak out of the camp at any hour, day or night, and expect his soldiers to follow him. And when he did this, it was certain to be a long and hard march. And this reminds me a lot of the movie Remember the Titans, when Denzel Washington wakes his team up in the middle of the night with a fire alarm and leads them on a grueling run through Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And that's the thing I find truly inspiring about Caesar's training of his soldiers. When he wasn't busy governing three provinces, he actually led them in these exercises personally. In these long drill marches, he would lead them rather than hiding in his tent and doing the other work required of a commander of multiple legions and governor of three provinces. Sometimes he would lead them on horseback, it's true, but far more often he would lead them on foot, suffering through all the hardship he put them through. And this despite the fact that he was in his 40s and the soldiers were presumably men in their 20s, 30s, or even younger. And the common soldiers and officers alike loved Caesar for leading them by example and for putting himself through the same difficulties he asked of them. Adrian Goldsworthy also quotes Plutarch in his book as saying about Caesar, quote, that he should undergo toils beyond his body's apparent power of endurance. Because he was a spare habit, had soft and white skin, suffered from epileptic fits. Nevertheless, he did not make his feeble health an excuse for soft living, but rather his military service a cure for his feeble health, since by wearisome journeys, simple diet, continuously sleeping in the open air, and enduring hardships, he fought off his trouble and kept his body strong against its attacks. Most of his sleep, at least, he got in cars or litters, making his rest conduce to action, and in the daytime, he would have himself conveyed to garrisons, cities, or camps. One slave who was accustomed to write from dictation as he traveled sitting by his side, and one soldier standing behind him with a sword. End quote. And if we add to this the fact that Caesar always referred to his men as comrades, or in Latin, as camillatones, rather than men or soldiers, and that he generously shared all spoils with his men, and that Caesar has led them to victories in two campaigns already. And you can really see how the bond is being built between army and commander. Now, I've said in the past, specifically in episode 30, that Caesar taught his soldiers how to be confident in themselves. Well, in the same vein, he also taught them to be proud of themselves as individual soldiers and as a collective unit. Caesar greatly rewarded valor among his troops, and this was always true of the Roman army. The Roman military put huge emphasis on individuals behaving in brave and daring manners for the betterment of the legion and of their fellow soldiers. But in Caesar's army, this focus on personal bravery was taken to new limits. Individuals who showed valor in combat would be given weapons inlaid with silver or gold as a reward. This made these soldiers stand out as being especially brave in an organization that obsessed on this quality of bravery. 
In addition to making that individual soldier feel proud and valued by his commanders, giving out trophies like this also acted as an encouragement to the rest of the army. The rest of the army would see these men strutting through the legionary camps with gold and silver weapons. They would see all the respect that such trophies carried as symbols of valor. And they would see the effect these sorts of distinctions had on their peers. In other words, they would see the amounts of respect accorded to someone who walked into the room with decorated war trophies. And they would hear the tones of all that their peers spoke about these men with. And they would naturally feel envious. And because of this, they would feel encouraged to fight more bravely and take greater risks when next in combat, to try to win themselves similar trophies so that they could gain that same respect. And just another note, Suetonius also says that the gold and silver weapons made these men, Caesar soldiers, even more careful not to be disarmed in battle. But I'm not too sure about this point. That sounds kind of ridiculous to me. <laughs> you know, just because you're, you're sword, I would think that the number one reason that you try not to get disarmed is because you don't want to die. The fact that your armor or your shield or sword has some gold or silver on it would be secondary, I would imagine, but who knows? Now, a big reason I love history is because there is so much to be learned and applied to our modern lives. And that's a huge reason why I'm doing this podcast, and it's a larger theme of the podcast. That history has lessons for us, and we can take these lessons and improve ourselves by studying them. Take Caesar's training of his soldiers. Most of us won't find ourselves commanding an army, but you may find yourself the coach or captain of a sports team, the manager of a group at a company, the leader of a nonprofit. And by looking at how Caesar managed to get his army working so efficiently, you can learn lessons that you can just as easily apply to your leadership role. For example, number one is lead by example. Now, this is something that's said all the time, but it is different to hear a historical example where somebody actually does this. It's often something that sounds good, but there's a reason that most people don't actually practice leading by example. It takes an enormous amount of effort to perform all the duties of a leader while also getting down in the trenches with the common soldiers or employees or players. But by going above and beyond as a leader, you inspire those who follow you to also go above and beyond. And this is why it's something that's worth doing. The second lesson we can take away from Caesar and the way he treated his troops and led them is that punishment and fear are not always the best motivators. Most of the Roman army used fear to instill discipline and motivation. Caesar went against the grain in this organization and found a host of other ways to motivate his legions. And leading by example was just one of these. Another was sharing the spoils of war with them, making sure that his troops were well taken care of financially. Also rewarding acts of bravery generously was a third. Creating a feeling of camaraderie and pride as a unit was another. And in hindsight, all these factors combined to make an army far more motivated, far more disciplined, and far more committed than any Roman army had been before Caesar's day. And most of those Roman armies had been motivated by fear. That is to say that Caesar's style of leadership produced an army far more motivated than other Roman armies that were motivated purely by fear. And that is a lesson that I can say from firsthand experience. It's a lesson some managers in banking and finance need to learn. 
that there are other ways to motivate people outside of fear, and that fear is not always the most effective way to motivate people. Another lesson we can take from Caesar's leadership style is that he rewards the behavior he wants to see, and he rewards it richly. Like I said, the Roman army always did this, but Caesar took it to new levels. Simply put, you cannot go too far in recognizing and rewarding the type of behavior you want in your organization. This is how winning cultures are formed. It makes it very clear to everyone what kind of deeds they should be striving to emulate. And those are just a few of the lessons. There are many more lessons I could mention from this episode, but that's where I'm going to stop for today. And you may have noticed that this ending was a little different to other podcast episodes, with me calling out lessons from Caesar's leadership directly. And this is something that I haven't often done in the past because, to be honest, in reading history and applying it to modern life, that comes very natural to me. And I don't think a lot of these things need to be said out loud. I think it's very obvious that these are the lessons. But I've been told by friends and family that it's not always as easy or as obvious for them when reading ancient history to see how it relates to their modern life. So they have asked me to spell it out in an episode to see how it goes. So if you enjoy episodes like this where I kind of spell out the lessons and how it can apply to your modern life, let me know and I can do more like this. And if you don't like these kinds of episodes, let me know that too. And it would be good feedback to have. But that's it for this episode. The next episode, I was thinking of getting into how Caesar spent the rest of his winters across the Alps running his three provinces. I mean, this man had relentless energy, and it's a good thing, too, because, like I said, he had three provinces to run, and he had multiple legions to organize for, and he had to also write masterpieces of Latin literature in his winters while in Gaul, but... I think we've been away from Gaul for too long in that, you know, we had the two travel episodes of, of life in Spain here. We've had this episode of how Caesar trained his army, and we really haven't progressed the narrative for a while now. So I think next episode, instead, we're going to get back into Gaul for year two in Gaul. We're going to start with that, which is uh, a period of Caesar's life that's jam-packed with action and with fighting. It's a good one. And then after that, in the winter after the second year in Gaul, at that point, I'll tell you how he ran his provinces and what he spent his winter doing outside of training his troops. But before we end the podcast, as always, let me just say that our Instagram is at the March of History. Definitely give it a follow. It has quality content, all sorts of historical content, and not just history too. Different things about my travels across Spain and Whenever coronavirus ends, it'll be travels across all of Europe and the history I encounter as I'm traveling, uh, different cultural things. I've had videos of flamenco shows on there. So definitely give it a listen or definitely give it a follow. Uh, you will not regret it. The Twitter is at March underscore history. I haven't done as much with that yet, but part of that is because it's, it's tough to run all these social media channels at once and, and to do something with them while also working on the podcast. Sometimes I find that I, I spend most of my days on the social media channels rather than on the podcast, which is not what I want to be doing. So I'm trying to redirect my energies towards the podcast and away from social media. But that being said, we also have a Facebook page, which has all the same content as the Instagram page. And that you can find if you just search the March of History our email if you want to send an individual message to us with some feedback, some things that you liked, or maybe some things that you didn't like, is the March of History at gmail.com. 
please also, if you listen on an Apple device or any kind of device or platform that allows you to leave reviews, please, we would really appreciate it if you give us a five-star review and leave some kind of rating with some nice words. It helps the podcast to grow. It helps people to see that, hey, other people find this content to be quality and it brings in new listeners. Also, don't forget to share the podcast with any and everyone you know. We want to spread this podcast as far and wide as we can. And always make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get notifications when we put out new episodes. That's it. That's it for this episode. And we will see you next time on the March of History, where Caesar embarks on his second campaign season in Gaul. 